After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. He's a conservation ringer. All right, Jim Heffelfinger is back. The famous Jim Heffelfinger. I feel like you're going to beat my ass in trivia, which kind of makes me wish you hadn't come. Yeah, I'd like to donate to uh, Mueller Foundation. They've been really <laughs> <laughs> You already got it figured out. See, yeah. I feel like you're already going to win anyway, and then Spencer's going to throw you a bone. Yeah, well, he should. Everybody gets a, a ringer, don't they? I just don't like it. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, when I play at home, sometimes I really don't do very well. Oh, sometimes right? I do pretty and good. those bones don't yeah. seem to be automatic no. by any means. No, they're not, not sticky always. bones. <laughs> so, yeah, um, the Instagram came for you, Jim. They did. Shut me down. Banished. I, I don't understand how, ways. like, I don't get it. And they don't call you and say, Jim, by God. We've had enough. There's nobody that makes those decisions. So my Instagram account, my old one that I had built for years, which was Jim Deere, was just shut down. They just said the, the account's been disabled. Now, you don't think it has to do with, like, the fact that you're not Jim Deere tractors? Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> like, Jim, like, like... John like, Deere. Cause it, yeah, but I mean, didn't you use that little icon? Uh, yeah, I used the icon and, and photoshopped it to be a mule deer instead of a, a white-tailed deer. But that if you look that. on there, there's a whole bunch of other people that use that icon and everything else. So I don't, I don't think that was it. And It was because you like to shoot pistols. I do. I shoot pistols competitively. But I've been posting those pist- pistol shooting videos for 10 years, as have everybody I shoot competitively with. So it's really, I think it's just like a random AI bot. Some kind of, something randomly was triggered. Well, have you tried um, to do the appeals? Yeah, I did. Did you have appeal. a certified account? I don't know what certified is. Yeah, I don't either, but it's a thing. I, I did, um, I have, I did I an have appeal. It. Like yeah. if you have the little blue check mark next to your name. Yeah, I don't think so. I'm just means a big time. Is there a uh, point at yeah, which you just time. get too big though, when they're not going to shut you down? Like, is there? I well, wonder if there's I mean, like, like you could take the president of the United States, for instance, who gets well, shut down yeah. on social media. Or maybe so, yourself. So maybe no, <laughs> maybe not. 
Yeah, I did send an appeal They're like, every other day. Trump, sure. Kardashians, no way. No way. <laughs> They're just too bad. They're too bad. They're too bad. <laughs> no, yeah, you can get kicked off. You can. They'll kick you off. It depends on your politics. You yeah. don't get. No, they don't kick off like super left wing people. Maybe they do. <laughs> Does Bill Maher ever get kicked off Instagram? No, no clue. No clue, bud. Huh? He's not super left wing. No, you're right. Yeah. But he's controversial. Oh, he's controversial. He's like. I'd like to have a list of famous left wingers kicked off social media. <laughs> There's gotta be some. Now. I don't know. Um, well, that's too bad, man. So you had to start over again. I feel yep. like you need to get in there and try to like figure it out, man. Yep, I did for two months. For two months, and for the first month and a half, I sent one of those appeals at least every other day, and it just out into the black hole. No response. No response from from Instagram at all. So. After about two months, I just shrugged my shoulders and started a new one. Is it really that uh, lifeless and soulless that no that you can appeal that many times and no one's ever going to just shoot you a note saying, there's nothing that can be done. Here's what you did wrong. I wouldn't have thought so, but yeah, apparently. Apparently, like no response. So like nobody, nobody is listening. Nobody's responding. And there's probably not like a phone number you can... No. Right. No. Get, no. Right. Yeah. Like, get some customer yeah, you service. Your account, if your account has been canceled, press yeah. five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they have over a billion subscribers. Instagram does worldwide. So, I mean, they're yeah, not watching so. accounts. They're not. They're not probably not manually canceling accounts. There's probably some AIs, the AI, artificial intelligence that's that's just getting triggered and shutting things down. So and then one in eight global. No, because there's many people that are dupl- duplicates and businesses and stuff. I mean, you got like eight billion people. One of our camera guys, when you hear someone doing something totally insane or someone says like, I wonder if anyone blank, his reply is, man, there's 8 million people on this planet. Billion. billion. Yeah, 8 billion people on this planet. Of course someone does that. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So the new account's servid nut, which is (sighs) been my email. You got to start from scratch now. Yep. Yeah, it's really exciting to put together these really. I don't think I follow. I'm going to follow Servant Nut right now while I'm sitting here. You're already on Zuckerberg's radar, man. I know it. I know (laughs) it. I'm on the list. Yeah, it's C E R V I D N U T. Don't tell me. Do you know Zuckerberg's building a big development in town here? No, really. I learned that from Kylie's husband because I follow him on Instagram. What kind of development? Housing development. I don't know. So. You know, I can't think of that dude without thinking of him in the movie, uh, you know, that movie, uh, movie Social Network. Yeah. Oh. Like, I can't think of him without it being that kid, the character. Yeah. Okay, here I am. I'm following you. And then, um, well, you're already up to, you're, you're, you're already up to 454. Yeah, I know it. 400. Isn't that amazing? How many were? How many did you have on? The I other had about one? four thousand, so I wasn't a huge account. But it's four fifty-five. You build, yeah. You build some. You you build some followers, and then you just start over, and then you put this really cool post out there, and and you you know you got one hundred and two followers. And <laughs> Dude, I'm gonna do everything I can to help you out. Oh, your kid's all good for the tickets. Oh, excellent. Can you rest easy now? Yep. Yep. So, awesome. are you just gonna keep posting like you did before, or are you gonna yeah. change things? At yeah. All no, I've already I've already posted I've already posted some shooting videos. Right after I established the account, and someone said, "What are you doing? You're going to get banned again." And I said, "Well, I better try it out now when you have 100 followers than to build it up again." Well, and, well why would you do that? Because everybody else does it. I mean, everybody that's a competitive shooter is posting videos of them shooting. And plus, we don't well, know. Yeah, we, but we don't know. You don't know that's the reason. Because what about like Taylor Thorne? All she does is post. Let me look. 
Is she still alive? <laughs> I, I, I know she's alive. I mean, she's, is she like having yes. a mess with her? She's, she's still on the gram. But, Hold yeah, on. that's what Jim's saying is that he doesn't, we don't know what canceled it. No, but he's I'm trying to see. I don't, oh, no, here she is shooting up a storm. Yeah, and that I mean, guy, I, hmm. what's that guy's name that was at the Vortex shooting school yeah, thing? Ruben. Uh, Ruben, but no, there was another guy. It was like Josh. Oh, I forget his name. Oh, yeah. Anyway, um, I was just watching his shooting videos the other day on, yeah, on yeah, Instagram. Because I shoot competitively and I have a lot of friends that are shooters, you know, my, my feed Fra- is just full Fra- of shooting Fra- videos. Yeah, yeah that guy, he's going to come on the show someday. Here he is shooting up a storm. Yeah, he posts a bunch about shooting. Maybe maybe you're vid- maybe you're not good at shooting. Maybe they uh, <laughs> maybe they got an AI that finds people who aren't that good with a pistol. Probably too slow. It's like too inaccurate. Shut his shut his account down. <laughs> I can think of I can shoot a better pistol behind my back. <laughs> uh, I hesitate to bring this up, Jim. Um, I called you dumb. <laughs> Did you have one last thing you wanted to say about how to spell white-tailed deer? I do. But, you know, you, you, <laughs> okay. you said that I say stupid shit all the time, which I do. But No, that, no, no. I would have never have said that. But that balanced, I think, the previous podcast where you said I was the smartest guy on the planet. So I said I'm, you're I'm stupid about one thing. <laughs> maybe you say that one thing too much well now I think you're stupid about two things I feel like you just got burned you put your hand in the fire and got burned and now your hand's Doing back in the fire on Instagram so there's like one way I think you're stupid being really smart and saying dumb things are not exclu- mutually exclusive either and the second way you're dumb is this is you and Durkin's like like white dot tailed deer thing you you almost cleared it all up recently and then right at the end, you just, you botched it. Oh, I did? <laughs> yeah. I, like, I, like you, you feel as though email. I'm not, you feel as though I'm not giving your argument yeah. effectively. Yeah. Previously, you weren't explaining the argument. Yep. And then you read my email and you got it like, uh, you got it perfect because you're reading my email. And then right at the end, I you got bored. Up. Well, can right we, re- re- can we rehash this? Because I didn't read the email. <laughs> okay. It's, it's simple. Okay. Look, can I set and, it up? No, Jim, Jim's going to set the whole damn thing up, but when you do, you better give my point good. <laughs> no, you can do it. You, you, it'd be more entertaining, probably. Okay. How do you feel? This is the, I swear to God, we will never talk about this again. <laughs> How do you, if you had to spell, okay, the deer that lives in America, but not mule deer, mm-hmm. spell it for me. W-I-T-E-T-A-I-L-E-D. Okay, that's a different, that's yeah. a, a new or, one. That's yeah. a, okay, sorry. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. some people spell it E-D. You could just put T-A-I-L as, as, well, as, correct, as well. Correct, correct. Mm-hmm. But, but, but. I know, there's. Heffelfinger here and, and Dirk and they're like, I equate it to people who go thee and thou. <laughs> they feel that it's W-H-I-T-E dash mm-hmm. T-A-I-L-E-D. And like, Sure. But no one in their right mind is going to write that. And I was mm-hmm. pointing out that every book I've ever written, when I get it back from the copy editor, the copy editor has gone in and turned them all into that. And I then need to go back in and stat. Let me give you a little book writing. <laughs> I wouldn't stat. Stat is when an editor makes like if a, when an editor makes a correction in your manuscript, and you're like, no, you're wrong. You write stat. That stands for stop doing that. <laughs> back off back off <laughs> yeah so the editor wanted to hyphenate it because it's like it's sort of if it, it's like thee and thou 
It, it's like this antiquated, formal <laughs> antiquated. spelling, and and Durkin like wants it. Did, Durkin, what what was the magazine Durkin used to work for? Deer and Deer Hunting. He bought the first magazine article I ever sold. Durkin, when he was the editor of Deer and Deer Hunting in the nineties. Is that right? Yeah, that's how long we've known each other. That's back when they said the and now. Okay, and on the cover of that magazine, was it like hunt the whitetail right the right way? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they would write the hyphen? No. Okay. Well, sometimes. But here, here's the deal where it gets all mixed up. There's there's no, um, it's not the and thou. There's no kind of question about what the <laughs> official name is. I mean, the official name of that deer is white hyphen tailed with an ED deer. I mean, that's the name of that animal. No changing it. There, well, there's no changing it, but but we always, we shorten it and we say white tail, white tails. That's fine. But when you say white tail, deer. Now you've just taken the two uh, acceptable forms of that word and you smash them together. It's not even grammatically correct. White-tailed deer, you've got to put the ED. Like when you were trivia a couple weeks ago and, hmm. and you wrote ivory-billed woodpecker, you, I hope you didn't have a hyphen and an ED on that. Did you write ivory-billed woodpecker? Ivory-billed woodpecker? Ivory-billed. If you look at the names Dude, of you species, you want to talk about which... ivory bills, I'll tell you some something that's stuff that'll curl <laughs> oh, your no. hair. I should have read a great up. book about that. Go on. Yeah, but but Durkin sent a list of of animals that have like a hyphen ed, and it's pretty rare to find any animal that is just smashed together and doesn't have the hyphen ed. So the correct word, the correct name of that animal is white hyphen tailed deer. But nobody wants to run around saying white tailed deer, white tailed deer. And even when I write all the time, I mix it up with white tails, white tail, white tailed deer, with an ed and a hyphen. What's not correct is when you hybridize those and you say white tail. And then you add deer to the end of it. White tail deer. White tail deer. That's not correct. That's just some what a, hybrid of the two acceptable forms of it. So you say white tails. We're going to hunt white tails. Look at that white tail. These are white tailed deer in a little more formal setting. But you don't say white tail and then add deer to the end of it. Do you say mooses? <laughs> Meese. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Corinne's got a note in here. When I was, uh, when we were... <laughs> I passed along to, when we're in Alaska hunting moose, oh my on my gosh, inreach, Steve. I passed along to Kylie. I sent Kylie a note that said, tell Corinne that I had a dream that she fell from the sky and landed in my mom's <laughs> yard with a compound <laughs> fracture in her left femur. I, you came out of the sky, hit a tree branch, and landed in the yard with a compound fracture in your left femur. I wonder what that means. I don't know. I, and then I, weirdly... <laughs> We then had to go do something or another, and I was very distracted by the bone sticking out of your thigh, and you were just uh-huh. very nonplussed. Uh, you know, that's, yeah. Does that mean I'm tough? I just found that hilarious because that's that's what Steve sometimes uses in reach for to mm. communicate. You hit a limb right across your gut. Messages. It was like, you just came out of nowhere. Flop, bam, right into the ground. In your mom's yard. My mom's yard. <laughs> so watch your ass. I think we need to. This was actually Savannah's idea that there be some kind of coffee table book or calendar or something with a, a compilation of all your random in-reach messages. My in-reach messages. Yeah, that'd be hilarious. Um, maybe that'll be uh, now. It'd be like next calendar. Fucked up in-reach yeah. messages. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, your book's back in print, Jim. Yeah, Deer of the Southwest. Yeah. Yeah, publish that. And that's uh, Desert Mule Deer, Cow's Whitetailed Deer in the Southwest. That's um, Coos Deer, folks. <laughs> for you folks at home. Interpret. <laughs> interpret. <laughs> yeah, so it's been out of print. Actually, the first time I was on the podcast here, I don't know how many copies were left, but shortly after that, it just it was gone. It was uh, out of print. 
Um, Did it get to where, is it so out of print that people sell them for stupid amounts of money and then no one yeah. wants to buy it? I've got some screenshots of $800 on, <laughs> on Amazon. That happens to rare books. Yeah, yeah, good books. You know, because it'll be like someone, well, yeah, because <laughs> you'll see it where there's an out of print book and there'll be like a slight spike in demand. And then there's some guy who's like, I don't know, maybe someone needs it for like some thing. And then all of a sudden it shoots up and they're selling it. And then, and then you go back the next day and someone made some more and they're back to normal. Mm-hmm. But it's always mm-hmm. like a last gasp. Like, I don't know. You never know. Maybe someone will give me 800 bucks for this book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I, shortly after I was on the podcast the first time, I went and ordered some because I sell some on my website, deernut.com. They, and haven't, I, banned, and they haven't banned that website. They have not banned that. Uh-uh. And, and I had orders. I had standing orders. And so I called the publisher to get some more. And they said, well, we're waiting for more. We're out. And, and we're waiting for more. And I, I said, who are you waiting for more books from? Because they're the publisher. They're the ones that have the store, the warehouse of them. And it turns out it was out of print. And so that was right when COVID started. And there's COVID and there's some revolution in the, um, the changes in the personnel and Texas A&M University Press. So it drug out for three years, but just about two months ago, it became available and it's, it's available everywhere. Awesome. Do you get any money off that? A little bit. Yeah, I think um, the first run, I think I calculated I got 62 cents in royalties for the, tw- for the book at that time. 62 per copy. Per copy. <laughs> you don't well, you need- know what? That's actually not that insane. <laughs> it's it, it's not difficult. that crazy. Yeah, yeah. People don't realize that. They think if you sell a book, you know, you, the author probably gets 80% or so, but no, the author no, gets no, a no, tiny no. fraction. No, if you buy a paperback, an author might get a dollar. Yep, yeah. yep. Uh, oh, you know what I was going to mention about your thing getting your account getting suspended. I don't know if you're reading. Um, it could be from the. It could be high up, because I was reading in the. I can't remember if it was reported in the Wall Street Journal or the Times. I think it was reported in the Journal that the the Biden administration was actually had a, had a list of people that they felt like a. People they felt were disseminating COVID disinformation. That was probably and the it. administration themselves were working with social media platforms on a hit list, and oh, even wow. pointing out if they'd like cancel from one, they'd be like, "Oh yeah, but he's still on this." Mm-hmm. So it could come from high associated. Up. Yeah, it might it could come be. from high up. That's the, that's the thing about that Instagram account, the original one. I I never talked politics. I never talked controversy. You know, that was my place for just really fun, interesting deer stuff. You know, sometimes dad jokes, sometimes funny stuff. It, it was really benign, really vanilla, and and interesting. So it's not like there was anything controversial. You never said, you know, if it. you want to cure COVID, get a <laughs> copper. <laughs> is it brass or copper? Copper. I think. Yeah, you you got to get a copper, copper rod. A copper dowel and swirl each nostril. <laughs> Never said that. That's no, what dirt told no, us. No, I don't think I said the word COVID on my account. Um, no, oh, it's depressing. <laughs> Why'd you want to talk about John Coulter? John, John I got some trivia for you. Well, who's his buddy that yeah. got who's his buddy that got chopped all to pieces not far from here? And they, oh, no. s- they smeared those pieces on John Coulter. Oh, I don't know that story. Pots. They were Lewis and Clark alum. Don't know that. But Coulter was uh, one of the Lewis and Clark expedition. He shot a mule deer, um, and that mule deer ended up, when it was described in the journals of the uh, of the expedition, that ended up to be the original description that found its way in the scientific literature for the very first description of, of mule deer in the West. Uh, there's a, a French guy named Raffinesque who named a whole bunch of, of animals, gave them scientific names. And he published in, in 1817, he published the first account of mule deer. And he based that on the, the journals 
of Charles LeRae. And Charles LeRae Journal is, is famous. A lot of people have, have published and talked about how Charles LeRae was the first one to describe mule deer. I've written about it several times. Turned out I was full of shit that time, too. Is that right? Because the Charles LeRae Journal is a complete fraud. Charles LeRae never existed. Um, and, and Oh, I read about this at some point in time, yeah. And, and so that Charles LeRae Journal, they've traced actually Patrick Gass from he was he was on the Lewis and Clark expedition. So the journal kept by Patrick Gass, you know, they all kept different journals. Patrick Gass described the mule deer. That turned out to be the first description of mule deer. It was it was incorrectly folded into this fraudulent, completely fraudulent and fabricated journal of Charles Charles Larey. And then Charles Larey's journal was used to describe mule deer by this Rafineske guy into the scientific literature. When they trace that back, it turns out this mule deer that John Coulter shot and was, was described in Patrick Gass's journal and published was actually the first description of mule deer where they started talking about it. Now, what like what makes it the first description? We we recently had a Coronado. Uh, mm-hmm. We recently had a Coronado expert on the show, and no doubt, I haven't read everything from everybody on the Coronado expedition. But they, no one on the Coronado expedition was like, oh, and there's a deer. <laughs> yeah. That's true. They weren't writing things like that. Whereas Lewis and Clark, I mean, that was their purpose to go document all the natural things. And so um, what little written word that exists from the Coronado expedition, I don't even know what that is, but I know there is some, they weren't, they weren't talking about types of deer. And and even if they said deer, it would, it wasn't a description of this. You live in Arizona. Mm-hmm. They Dude. both live in Tucson. You yep. need to go listen to the. You need yep. to go listen to the. Uh, They'd be her, buddies. She's finding the. She just found the oldest gun in America mm-hmm. in your state. Right. I heard that whole podcast. Yeah, it was good. What do you, you don't know who Coronado is? I'm, I never paid any attention to it. Well, you just listened to the podcast. <laughs> I did. Oh, so you know now. What What was the question? What you just said? What? I don't know anything about Coronado. Yeah, other I just than told, the podcast. You just listened about it. Right. Right. Yeah. He said other than the podcast. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's just not a topic that I've dove into and and read about at all. Um, so either or, they never like like Lewis and Clark's account counts as because they said it's yay big, it's got this, it's got this, it's got yeah. this. That counts as a scientific explanation. E- yes, it, the, a scientist has to take that and then describe it in a scientific journal. And, but they have to base that on something that's, uh, you know, an earlier journal. That What makes it the first description is how accurate it was. Mm-hmm. It talks about the rope-like tail with a black tip. It talks about the fact that they jump and they hop like goats. Um, it talks about these long ears. It talks about having more of a grayer coat. And so all of those descriptions make it um, no question that they're talking about a mule deer. And that was the first time someone described it accurately. I got you. The first white tail that was described was like 1581 in Virginia, actually it was North Carolina, but everything on the East Coast was considered Virginia at that time. And it's funny because they were Europeans Europeans trying to describe these white-tailed deer, which they hadn't seen before. And one of the main parts of the description is they said that the antlers are backwards. And so if you think about <laughs> a European, the roe deer, they're going backwards, the red deer, they're going backwards, mm. and they came to North America and these antlers are going forward. So they said their antlers oh. are backwards. You know, they, they never saw a deer where the antlers swept forward I toward their you. nose. Yeah. Everything was back. So that was one of the descriptions that had backwards antlers. Oh, really? Tail deer. Who was it that wrote that description? Um, oh, it was 1851 and it was, oh, I can't come up with it. Yeah. 1581, right? 1581. Right, right, right. 1581 at the time. So what's your new deer book then? 
Yeah, so we've been working, me and a lot of people throughout the West, been working on a big, what will be the, the Bible of mule deer and black-tailed deer in, in North America. About 41 years ago, Charles Walmo put together a book called Mule Deer and Black-tailed Deer in North America um, with different people writing different chapters. And that thing is, has, is still used as a reference for mule deer information, but it's four decades old. And so uh, as the chair of the mule deer working group, I'm in touch with all of the West leading mule deer people. And so about four years ago, we, we embarked on a, a, this, a new book to create another mule deer and black-tailed deer that was updated with all the latest information. So that is at the publisher now. It's it's in layout. That's It's going to be about 550 pages, 100 color photographs, yeah, 80 23 chapters, colors. 80 authors, 550 pages, 100 color photos. Yep, published by CRC oh, Press. Oh, so there's some, some Meat Eater Podcast alum right. here because Matt Kaufman did the migration, led the migration chapter. Kevin Monteith, who's been on the show, led the nutrition chapter. Ed Arnett, yep. who's been on the show, led a habitat chapter. Yep. So the cool thing is there's 23 chapters, and each chapter was written by the the international leader, the national leader for that topic. I mean, the expert for that topic. So this is a compendium of all of the latest information written by the people that on black tails and muleys. On black tail and mule deer. In fact, there's did seven. You, what cha- chapter did you lead up there, or did you not? Because you're doing the overall editing. Uh, I was the lead editor. Me and Paul Krausman, who used to be a professor at University of Arizona, was later a professor at University of Montana before retiring, and and I've known him for a long time. So he and I teamed up. So I'm the lead editor, um, and then I I wrote um, a good part of chapter one, which is historical distribution, taxonomy, um, where we take the eleven mule deer subspecies and distill them down to only five valid subspecies. Okay. So we pulled that down. Emily Latch was my co-author. She's a geneticist that I've been working with with decades um, doing deer genetics. But we've got the Tiburon Island mule deer, which is a Mexican island mule deer. We've got the Cedros Island mule deer. Those islands have been separated for 10,000 years, and they're genetically and they're physically different. And then we've got Sitka blacktail and Columbian blacktail as different subspecies. And then the fifth mule deer subspecies is continental mule deer. Everything in North America is the same subspecies because there's no geographic divider between. There's no genetic differences that you can really define. Physical differences that their tails change as you go in different areas, but there's no physical differences that you could really say these are different deer, they're different subspecies. What is up with a? Why are Sitka blacktails seemingly so different in appearance than Columbia blacktail? Yeah. They seem to have like a little white-tailed deer, or sorry, yeah. a little white-tailed deer. <laughs> <laughs> they look like white-tails. Laid up in them. Yeah. It, 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 that is fascinating. And that you is catch the long pause for the hyphen. <laughs> white-tailed. Tailed. You can just taste the hyphen in there. White-tailed deer. But it, through the Sitka, they've got these white-tail-like tails. They've got shorter metatarsal glands on their back legs, closer to um, white tails, uh, and they've got darker faces like a white tail, which, which makes it appear like they have white eye rings, um, like a white tail, short, smaller antlers. It, it's fascinating. I don't have an answer why they look like white tails. They're not, it's I, uh, not because of hybridization. Or I anything. thought I remembered reading in, uh, what's the old timer's name? Canadian Valerius Geist. Valerius Geist yeah. yep. I thought late, I remember reading Valerius in his Geist. book that and I could be wrong, but I thought there was a theory that when the ice was moving south, the, the whitetails kind of like work the edge of that ice south across the, you know, what would be the lower 48 up 
the West Coast and somehow yeah. met those, like... Yeah, not quite. They, they weren't coming along the coast, but what he talked about was we had whitetails already in the East. White, Orticolius, the whitetail mulder genus, has been in North America for 5 million years. We've got fossils in Florida 5 million years ago. So what he was I got saying one was, on my bookshelf. Yeah, that's right. That's that you right. gave me. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So we had whitetails in the east, and then we had this dif- differentiated into kind of a western mule deer, black-tailed deer thing, and then later glacial um, glacial action separated the blacktails along the coast, and then the mule deer in the central part. Geis's theory about um, like they met somewhere. Yeah, Geis's theory was that blacktail males interbred with whitetail females and created the mule deer. In my chapter one, I discussed that. A long time, mm-hmm. and I don't think it's valid. Right. I think there's a lot of reasons. Yeah, why his that's not like true. he had this kind of elaborate. I can't. What do you call that when you, a, as a scientist, what do you call what he would do? A theory monger. Okay, he's a Val's a friend of mine, lifelong friend. Um, but was, he would kind was. of throw out some stuff, and he'd be like, yep. "Well, how? Like, okay, show me your. You know, mm-hmm. want to help my kids with their homework? You know, and you kind of like show me your work." Yeah. Right. But They're he, like, what's blank times blank? That, that hey, wasn't necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> right. And you got like, show, so it's like, show me the work. His yeah. thing was that you had that, that it, it went like this. You had whitetails in the, what's now the Southeastern US, million, three million years ago, four million years ago. At some point in time, climatic conditions were such that they colonized America coast to coast. And then in the southern portion, yeah, from from they they yeah. made it all oh, the way out to California, all the way, yeah. And mm-hmm. then it got real hot and dry in the middle, and so there became a gap between the two, and then they had all this separate time to evolve, and then it got real nice weather again, and the white tails came back west. These abandoned black tails came east. They had sex along the Rockies, and and. Yeah. Then there's the mule deer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was he that, the one? That's the that, was he the one that said they they mule deer been around for ten thousand years, and I wouldn't be surprised if they're gone in ten thousand right. years. Yeah, he wrote an article I think in Outdoor Life that talked about the mule deer disappearing, um, and he says that they're a new species that arose in the Pleistocene. And um, we spent a lot of time in that chapter one because this information has been out there so much, and I haven't always agreed with it. And I did. I sent Val the the draft of my chapter to review. Unfortunately, he didn't get to it before he died. Yeah. He was actually, because I wanted his input on it because I was disagreeing with a lot of things. But we've been friends a long time, and, and that's what scientists do. It's okay to disagree. Yeah. Unfortunately, I would have really liked to have his comments. But with Val's theories, the thing is, it's it, it's not necessarily a bad thing. He was a thinker. Man, he thought outside the box all the time. And he was throwing these theories out. In a lot of cases, he threw a theory out without showing his work. Just, I think this is what happened. And people followed up and did a master's or PhD on it and either proved it right or proved it wrong. And I remember him telling me one time that, that someone had done this work and they proved that one of his theories was wrong. And he called it splendid work. It was fantastic. Now we know, he said, that was a theory of mine. Someone did a great job of investigating it, found out I was wrong. And he was excited that someone, we actually had that information. He was that kind of guy. So he threw a lot of theories out. And some of those theories really helped people think about these, some of these concepts and, um, and relationships. And some of them were just, just batshit crazy. That picture of that muley buck on the cover makes me want to get that buck so bad. Oh, That's a kaibab yeah. buck. Yeah. yeah. Oh, George it? Andranko yeah. took that photo uh, on the kaibab. So the, it says here the last book like that was published like this was 41 years ago. There's a lot, like with mule deer especially. Like, right. 
Lots changed for them in the last. Oh, and, and black-tailed deer, and, and actually um, Steve's brother, Danny, reviewed the chapter on, on black-tailed deer. So one of the, seven of the chapters of those 23 chapters are, are a separate chapter on each of these seven ecoregions in North America. So we divided the coastal rainforest as one ecoregion. The Great Plains is one ecoregion. Um, the California Chaparral is one ecoregion. The, the Colorado Plateau and the des- Southwest Deserts. And so we have a chapter on each one of those ecoregions written by those experts that that manage and survey and hunt deer in, in those areas and have been researching and managing the deer in those areas. So, it's, so there's, a, there's even these seven chapters just focusing on ecoregions. Um, and there's one on the coastal rainforest with the black-tailed deer there. So um, it, it, it's pretty excited. It's pretty exciting. How are, are you um, pessimistic about the future of mule deer? No, not at all. Not at all. I think we just need to focus on habitat and if we preserve some, the open places for them to live. Um, they'll they'll be fine, and I and I've written about the future of mule deer, and um, people love mule deer too much. We're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna let anything bad happen. How important is predator control with mule deer in your view? Not not very important. Locally, you can do something, but um, you know, the idea that we're gonna kill some predators and it's just gonna air quotes help the deer out. Um, you have to really intensively control predators in a fairly localized area. To, to actually increase survival, either increase survival of fawns or increase survival of adults. And you can do it in a small area, but you can't do it even on a game management unit size area. It's, it would take so much money and so much effort to depress the predator population so much that you actually relax the predation pressure and improve survival um, of, of deer. And it's so expensive to do it in one game management unit. I mean, in my view, you, you spend those millions of dollars doing some long-lasting habitat work or some overpasses to preserve some migration corridors or something. So it's really, it can, it can be beneficial in a local area, um, but you're not going to be able to do it on a large-scale area just as a matter of deer management. So mm-hmm. when we as hunters are like walking around, touting around on Instagram, hey, everybody do your part, and someone kills a wolf or mm-hmm. a mountain lion. Yeah, it's not doing anything from a population standpoint. And people say, you know, we killed this lion, and, and so we did the deer population uh, the favor. Not really. I mean, you just not have that much of an effect. <laughs> did um, you follow other that? Other lions come in there. Did you follow that predator, predator program that they were doing in Colorado on the Rhone Plateau? That- I did not. That, was, that recent, was very, work. but that was like extremely specific in time and intensity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, that's exactly what Jim's yeah. talking about. Yeah. yeah, And it wasn't just like doing it in January. For, no, it was for, like for, focused, for fawn yeah. season. You know, yeah. yeah. And they did a long, uh, a long-term study. Mark Hurley and others, and Mark Hurley is the lead author on our predator chapter. Okay. Um, uh, in, in the book, he did a long-term study in Idaho where they controlled coyotes and lions in certain game management units. Um, and, and in the end, in a focused area, coyote control in a focused area can, can save enough fawns if you've got habitat. It's tied very closely with habitat. In fact, my next article in the Mueller Foundation magazine is on, on predators. Um, and we talk about how closely that's tied with the quality of habitat. Because if you go in and you kill a bunch of predators, you save a bunch of fawns, you absolutely save a bunch of fawns in that area. If the, the deer population is over carrying capacity, they're going to die from something else some other causes. So the habitat has to be such that it can hold a lot more deer. So when you save them from the jaws of predators, then, then they actually have a place to live and they've got enough food. Mm-hmm. So it's very closely tied with habitat quality and caring. Capacity. I hear every now and then uh, speaking to uh, habitat, people are like, well, I see deer all the time in my little suburb neighborhood. Mm-hmm. 
Um, they seem to be just fine. They're adapting. They're in the, they just live in the yards. Everything's fine. You don't need yeah. to preserve wide open habitat. What's my, your answer to my that? Sister, my sister keeps sending me videos of the two <laughs> mealder bucks right outside her window. On, yeah. And they lay in her front lawn in sure. the shade and they eat out of the bird feeder. Um, and they grow out and they graze in the, in the yard. So that's one little snapshot of their year round habitat needs. And mm-hmm. so, you know, they need, they need winter range free from snow and with some forage during the winter. Um, they need some really good nutritious summer range. And, and then they might once in a while come into a neighborhood and eat a little bit and hang out, but that that's not providing the habit, their habitat needs for the whole year or even really that month. It's just a, it's just a stop at Dairy Queen is all it is. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know. They seem great to me. It's just an improvement on perfection. The new system made in the USA gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're they're D-rings that lay real flat. You still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20 plus years. Deck is a game changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck out of the way and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. 
The reason I like black buffalo pouches is one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. We had a text message. Who, who found this text message? Oh, that was I, I, that someone sent that to me. Someone said it was bro, a D, uh, Instagram thing, an Instagram message to Brody. <laughs> They're called DMs on yeah, Instagram, yeah, yeah. Brody. Yeah. I'm in an <laughs> argument. This is from someone who says to Brody, "This read it, Brody." I'm in an argument with a friend who is claiming that 98 percent of game animals, and, Just anyway, are tagged it. with trackers. While I know this number is unbelievably wrong, I'm having a hard time finding numbers for tracked game animals. Any insight? I just replied, like, there's 25 million deer in the United States. Do the math. <laughs> Do the but, math. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, 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 I mean, you probably know better than anyone, but I would guess it's way less than 1%. This is like it, black it, helicopter <laughs> level. Yeah, it is. No, yeah. Utah has more radio collared ungulates than any other state right now. They're putting out, like, 500 GPS collars a year as part of their herd monitoring, they're statewide. It's really an incredible effort. What are they after? No one's even close. Their survival rates um, cause specific mortality, what's killing them, and then overall, how are they surviving, and movements, migration patterns, and movements and habitat use. Um, they're, they're getting some fantastic information. For example, talking about predators, they have a whole bunch of units that, from all of those radio collars, they know that those animals are limited by habitat because they're taking fat levels and nutrition information, and they're, and they're malnourished. They, you know, they they know these animals are limited by habitat. They've got another unit. The animals are fat. They're doing really well. They've got really good nutrition. And still the adult female survival is really low. And most of them are getting killed by mountain lions. Mm. So here they actually have the information where all these populations are limited by habitat and predator control is not going to help anything. In this unit right here, they're doing really well habitat nutrition-wise and predators are killing snot out of them. And so if you have that kind of information, you can go to that game management unit then and and up the, the mountain lion quota, let people kill twice as many mountain lions in that area and try to get that deer population um, to recover. So that's the benefit of that kind of information. But they have about 12... They have about 1,200 mule deer right now radio collared with GPS collars in the state of Utah. Their population is about 300,000 mule deer. It's yeah. a, less than half of 1% yep. of, of, the, of the population collared. So there's, Not there's in fact 98%. Not 98%. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like someone's frustrated they saw a big buck with a collar. Yeah, <laughs> or they're worried about... No, the black helicopters finding them when they're poaching something. I don't know. <laughs> well, I thought that all, all aren't all birds now tracking us or drones or something. Yeah. What was yeah. that? What was that hashtag that was going yeah. around? Well, I, yeah, I posted that on my old Instagram account. It was a poster that said "Birds are drones. Wake up! The government's watching us. <laughs> <laughs> birds aren't real. It said birds aren't real. That's they're right. drones. They're birds government drones. Real. And I think there's a website. Probably I think there's so. a big movement in a website that's called Birds Aren't Real. Well, you know that the we're spending way too much time on conspiracy shit, but <laughs> did you know that um you like the whole flat the earth flat thing? Started flat out earthers? as a joke. Yeah. 
was like a guy just made a guy was like making a point and it started out as a joke but it caught on <laughs> i didn't know that they, like the flat earth folks the new kind of flat earth folks uh-huh. it started out as a dude like goofing on people like that but then his goof caught on <laughs> and he created a movement yeah like there's a great youtube video about how stevie wonder wasn't blind it'd be like <laughs> oh, God. uh it'd be like that but also it becomes like a big movement you know they say that the earth can't be flat or cats would have pushed everything off it by now. <laughs> <laughs> the, I want to talk about antla, the word of the day, antler genesis. And I'm looking at a thing that describes antler growth more closely resembles bone cancer growth mm-hmm. than regular bone growth. Right. Yeah. Ant, antler growth. I mean, that's a growth of bone. It's a growth of nerves. You think about when you injure a nerve, how, how long it takes to heal that nerve. Here we have antlers that are growing in the course of a couple months. And these bones are growing a couple feet, nerves are growing a couple feet, the, the skin's growing so fast. So that bone growth, which can be up to an inch a day in some species, think about that, an inch a day, that's, that's incredible. And so that bone growth is so fast, antler growth of that bone material is actually more rapid than, than bone cancer growth. And so there's people doing research with, with the deer family to be able to grow bone that fast and then to shut it down and then to have it stop and then and shed the velvet and, and uh, calcify that bone, they've got to have some physiological or chemical mechanism to stop that runaway bone growth of, oh. of the antlers. They've got to have some regulation of this bone growth. So people are studying that um, in relation to, to bone cancer and saying, well, if they're able to shut down that, that crazy bone growth, maybe we can tap into that and find a way to shut down cancerous bone growth. Um, and, and regulate it in that way. And so it, when you look at captive deer, they've surveyed people that have deer in captivity about oh, how many died of can- how many deer had cancer because they're in captivity and they get sick, they take them in and they check them out. And the deer family seems to be five times less likely to get cancer. So it seems like they've got some kind of mechanism to control this tumor growth or bone growth. Um, so that, that that's pretty exciting if that can be tapped into and and, um, and maybe we could do something with cancer growth, regulating, slowing, stopping the growth of cancer cells. Do you know when, uh, I'll say about this the other day because we were watching some, uh, we were watching moose thrashing a lot of brush. We we're seeing a lot of bulls that got little bits of velvet dried on their antlers yet. Um, if a buck or a bull or whatever never thrashed brush, would all that velvet just stick there? No, it would come up. It, it, it loosens from that antler. And you see pictures sometimes of, of antlers, big mule deer or an elk, and it's falling off. It's starting to slough off of that. And even because you know they haven't been thrashing on brush because it's so loose, it would just, it would have been gone. But you can see it just loosen and, and start falling off. What about cactus bucks? Why are they holding? Like there's, why doesn't theirs just fall that's off? That's a hormonal issue. And there's a whole bunch of different oh, things man, that thought, can cause I thought that. Seth just knew hearts them, man. I thought, <laughs> I thought Seth maybe stumped him. <laughs> well, I, He's like, well, yeah. What about? <laughs> what, like Kelsey's yeah, box she question. shot a few years ago. Yep. It, 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 that was yep. in I October. That. And so I think what's I, up with that? And I, it was all yeah. intact, like not even yeah. trying to fall I off. I think I sent you the article. I wrote a bo- uh, an article in Mueller Foundation magazine on cactus bucks. And, and it's, a, it's a hormonal issue, but it's really complicated. So people are frustrated when they say, why is that buck still of antler? What, what's causing that? And there's, there's a thing called a cryptorchid buck, which is a buck that has his testes descend um, into the scrotum, but they stay like the size of a pea. They're yeah. just, they're, they're just um, super small. 
Um, or those are hypo, I'm sorry, those are hypogonadal bucks. Hypogonadal just means really small, really small gonads in the, in the scrotum. But then the, um, the crypt orchid bucks don't have their testes descend into the scrotum. They stay in the body cavity, usually encased in fat there. And, and those conditions can cause disruptions on the testosterone that that animal gets because the shed velvet, you need that peak in testosterone as you lead up to the, the, the rut. And so it's that surge in testosterone that dries the velvet and, yep. and it strips it off. And so if the testes are still in the abdominal cavity, or if they're too small and not producing testosterone, you just lack that, that testosterone to shed that. But it can be more complicated than that because you can have antler does, which are in velvet and people call cactus bucks. And they're actually does that have had a tumor on the ovary, which disrupted estrogen production, um, or other things in the, in the, um, hypothalamus gland, which can disrupt the production and distribution of of hormones. There's also been cases where animals, because sometimes you'll get like, if you have an individual animal, you've got some individual malformation, some individual problem with that animal. Sometimes you get a population where like half of the bucks are still in velvet in November. Now something's going on um, in that population and, and nobody's been able to nail that down. The, the leading theory is that some plants produce phytoestrogens, like plant-based estrogens. And into the certain, in a certain uh, season, you might have a certain rainfall pattern or temperature pattern, which makes a whole bunch of those plants just flourish and the deer are eating a lot of them. And they're just eating a lot of estrogen. It's disrupting the, the, the flow of testosterone in there. And so all of those different things can happen. And unless you get an animal in, you get a blood sample to look at testosterone levels. Um, you're able to look at the testes, the condition of the testes and look at the, the uh, antlers. There's also the, the receptors, the testosterone receptors in velvet might malfunction and they might have a lot of testosterone, but the velvet receptors aren't detecting it. So there's a whole bunch of really complex things and you can't really get to the bottom of it without a really intensive necropsy with a physiologist and a chemist. And what do you about see antler does that are viable? Yes. Okay. Yeah. There's a, the last white tail book actually had a picture of a, an antler doe with a fawn suckling her. So they, they can reproduce. It depends what causes that injury to the ant, injury to the skull on a doe might actually um, cause an antler growth uh, um, to form. They've done that experimentally. What about like surviving like EHD? I've heard that being a thing that causes. Yeah, not an, not antler does, but yeah, not antler does, but cactus bucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's definitely a thing. Um, there's a veterinarian, Doctor Fox from I believe Utah wrote a really good paper about um, a case of EHD. And, and EHD is epizootic hemorrhagic disease, and it causes this hemorrhaging. And it'll cause hemorrhaging in the body and the nose and the eyes and anus and everything, but it also can cause hemorrhaging in the test testicles. And so if it's hemorrhaging and swollen, it interferes with that production of testosterone and then it interferes with the antler cycle. So they, her team of uh, wildlife vets documented this case of EHD in a population causing a whole bunch of cactus bucks from disrupting that, that hormonal. Isn't it a flow. sign of that, like the the hooves sloughing off? Yeah, one sign of episodic hemorrhagic disease is lines or cracks in the hooves. And, and it runs, it's not lengthwise from the tip to the fur, but it's across the, the hoof. And it's what it is, is a stress line. It's when they get sick at the time they get sick because those hooves are constantly growing like fingernails. Yep. So at the time that they get sick, it that stops growing because they're really sick. Just like a bighorn sheep get those annual rings every year during rut because that horn sheath stops growing. And then when it starts growing again, it leaves that stress line there. And it's the same thing with the HD hooves is there'll be a stress line. Yeah, right I think with Kelsey's buck, if I can remember right, the the hooves were 
basically it looked like they were falling off. Yeah. On yeah. that one. And then that week we saw probably half a dozen mm-hmm. different bucks in mm-hmm. velvet still. Yep. Yep. So when you've got, especially when you have evidence like on the hooves like that, or if you've had some animals die earlier in the fall from EHD, you know, then it's an indication it's not something like the phytoestrogens I was talking about. Yeah. Hey, why do people use, oh, sorry, you have, go ahead. I had a little follow up on that too, just, uh, um, but uh, does any, is any of that what causes a buck to be a shirker buck? Oh, I was going to ask you. Do you know what a shirker buck is? <laughs> yeah. That was a guy. I think we yeah. may, I might have even asked you. As Yanni laid last, out, it was a guy's thing. It was a guy's thing. Yep. Yeah. Yep. He talked we might about, have even talked about it last time you were on. We could have. Um, I don't. I don't remember. But yeah, shirker bucks are those bucks that may be mature mule. <laughs> Hold on. Bucks. So you're saying you're defining it as it's a thing, uh, or, or you're just saying this no, is the I'm, theory that was laid out? Uh, yeah, I'm explaining. Okay. I'm explaining Val Geis's theory. Okay. Yeah, uh, because I don't. He he spent his PhD in Banff National Park observing mule deer that apparently were pretty tame, so he could observe them at close range, and from those observations, he wrote a lot about. Um, about mule deer breeding, but his theory was that there's some shirker bucks, and and they shirk the, they they <laughs> shirk the re- and he calls it that because they shirk their responsibility yeah, to breed yeah. that year. That's a great word. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and they he said they just opt out of rut. They gain a lot of fat. They don't burn their fat because they're not running does. They can just just stand around and bide and, their uh, time eat, and 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 bide their time and and so, hopefully his theory was at some point then they're so big and so fat and so powerful. They come just, down the mountain, they're like, I'll take her, boys. I'll, I'll take them all. Giannis <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> only hunts for shirker bucks. <laughs> yep. Um, I, don't, I don't know of any evidence, of any other evidence of that other than his stories. Yep. That he just kicks it. And, and let's I suspect, everybody do all the pre-rut. Let's then, everybody do mm-hmm. all the whatever. No, he was saying that it would go on yeah. for multiple years. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. one year, oh, it's yeah. like, oh, yeah, not just a season. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. He would go grow to be four or five years old and shirk all those seasons. Mm-hmm. And oh, it would be a not cumulative... just shows up on the day of the no, action. No, no, no. It would nope. be a cumulative effect that at five years, he's like, now, boys, nobody's yeah. messing it with just me. just cuts yeah. loose. All and... the other bucks are like, holy shit. <laughs> Yeah, he <laughs> yeah, he's been gaining so fat. So much been shirking up there on the mountain. <laughs> oh, yeah, so yeah, it was I, like a lifetime play. Mm-hmm. And the only way that would work from an evolutionary standpoint, if uh, on year five or whatever, he was able to uh, to father a whole bunch of offspring. I mean, that would be the only advantage. I um, do. We did talk about this. Cause I remember you making the you making an astute observation that if that's your reproductive strategy. You have a high degree of cockiness <laughs> that you're not going to yeah. die in year two, mm-hmm. year three, year four. You better be nocturnal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> even, yep. yeah, you got to have a good place to shirk. <laughs> what? Why do people use? Um, and I, I don't even know how to ask the question. I'll just, why does it? Why do people use blue tongue and EHD kind of synonymously? But they're not the same thing, right? Yeah, they're not. They're not the same thing, but they're they're very close. They're both hemorrhagic disease. They both cause kind of the same symptoms, but they they are very much different things. There's two forms of EHD: EHD one and two, and then blue tongue. I, I don't remember. There's like seven different types of blue tongue, and they're the virologists can tell them apart when they do like PCR genetic analysis. Um, so they're definitely different things. EHD is is usually more of a deer cattle thing. Blue tongue tends to be more pronghorn, uh, goats, sheep kind of okay. thing for some reason. Give me the life so, cycle of that disease. It's spread by a varipennis. It's a it's a gnat, basically a noceum. 
okay. is, is what spreads that. And so you'll, so it's, you've got to have some moisture in order to spread that disease, but it's a virus that's just spread by the bites of those gnats. And so, so he's got to bite a deer, then bite another deer. Yeah. Right. Why yep. is it that like in a place like Montana here where you have places where there's mule deer and whitetail like overlapping in the same habitat, why is it that it hits whitetails so much harder and mule deer seem to not be as affected by it? I don't know the species difference, but there's definitely a, a, a multi-year protection. Once, once animals get EHD and if they survive, and most animals do survive, they've got antibodies yeah. for that, for that virus. And when it comes, that's why it usually doesn't hit like every year. It'll, it'd be bad one year and then it won't hit for a couple of years because even if it's in the environment, those animals have high antibodies and they fight it off. Um, they had, they had some captive deer in Mississippi and some captive deer in, in Michigan. And it's, it's something that's mostly has been, it's moving North definitely, but it has been a Southern uh, kind of disease in the in the warmer climates, and they brought some Michigan deer down into the the pens with the Mississippi deer, and the Michigan deer just all died because they had no exposure to oh, it. Oh no, shit! In really? The past. They're very susceptible to it. That's and weird. Whereas the whereas the Mississippi deer had some antibodies and had some exposure to it, and so it's it is definitely some of that protection. Um, I and there are some diseases that. It, it is more of a whitetail thing and not so much a mule. Yeah, thing. like up on the Milk yeah. River, like, I don't know, the last time EHD hit, like, it crushed, like, 90% of the whitetails. Mm-hmm. But last the year. The mule deer were. Last year, from what ranchers were saying Yeah, up there. the mule deer were basically unaffected. Yeah, and and, I, and that's a known thing, um, but I don't know why. I don't know. It's just species are, different species yeah. are susceptible to different things, like different um, different dog breeds are more or less susceptible to rattlesnake bites and things like that. They're just. Does that have anything to do with the amount of moisture you get in a year? If yeah. it's going to be a bad year or a good year? Yeah, if it's super dry, because we, I co-authored a scientific paper like 25 years ago when we documented it for the first time in Arizona. So in, in arid climates where there isn't a lot of water for those noceums, those little gnats to reproduce, which is the vector, it won't spread animal to animal. It's got to be insect bites. And it's so, got to be a bad insect year. Yeah, it's got to be bad. Right. What you might year, call like a holy shit, there's a lot mm-hmm. of noceums this year yep. kind of thing. Yep, definitely. And we and they found out that the one that some of them in the southwest can actually reproduce in the moisture of like cactus, broken cactus. That's no all the moisture they need to reproduce. So that's been found. But but definitely some moisture around where you've got a lot of gnats that year. Now, he, okay, this is going to get a little complicated. I, I think I know the answer to this, but I want to make sure I know the answer to this. Why do when when deer get EHD? Why do they all turn up laying in rivers and ponds and creeks? Yeah, I think they're just water tanks. They're viremic. They're just like you know, like when you've got the flu, you want to drink a lot of water. It, it, they just want to drink a lot when they when they get their temperature comes up and they've got that virus and they're sick. They just naturally head to water to drink or to cool off. And they usually die like late summer, early fall. Yeah, it's definitely a late summer thing. That That's the first thing that makes you suspicious that maybe it's an EHD thing. They're by water in late summer. Now, last year, I think it was last year, Nebraska. Let me know when it starts ringing a bell for you guys. Last year in some portion of Nebraska, or maybe it was two years ago, they were buying back deer tags. I think that happened in the Dakotas too, maybe North Dakota. I was thinking Dakotas was, when okay. you said that. Yeah. North, they're, they're buying back deer tags. And some of the, and there's different people, department people talking about the cause. They were attributing it to the incredible dryness. But, but here's the catch. It was congregating deer more. 
around yep. water. Do you buy that? It, it it could be. I don't I don't know the details of that North Dakota incident to that degree. You've got to have the the vectors. You've got to have the insects to do that. Concentrated around water would put them all together like feeding deer in a CWD area or whatever. Definitely you've got disease spread much more than that. But I don't know if they had like a wet spring with a whole bunch of gnats all over the place and then it got dried through the summer and they were concentrated. I don't know that kind of kind of detail of what might have happened. Got it. Hey, what's a nude mouse model? <laughs> yes. Well, it's like the n- naked um, naked mole rat, the, the hairless cat. Let, let me read the article <laughs> title. Development of a nude mouse model for the study of antlerogenesis mechanism of tissue interactions and ossification pathway. Yeah, they basically bred some naked rats, some naked mice for studies for in, in, in the lab so that they didn't have all that fur on there. And they could do skin grafting studies and things like that where they would have this nude mouse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the model part of it is just they use this nude mouse as a, a, a model to do all kinds of different research and have found it, apparently have found it pretty useful. But they, we were talking about the um, antlers. When a, when a fawn, a buck fawn is born, it has what's called an antler periosteum. Um, underneath the skin of the forehead, and it's not attached. It's, it's, it's tissue, not attached to the skull, and it's not really attached to the skin initially. Oh, really? It just floats it, in it's there. It's just in between there, and then eventually it. So you could like insert that into Yanni's head. You could, and he would grow antlers because they <laughs> they haven't done it with humans. But they this nude mouse model uh, paper they took some of that antler periosteum, which is a stem cells, and stem cells are cells that can develop into anything, organs or skin or bone or anything. And so they took some of those, uh, the antler periosteum material, grafted it under the skin of the forehead of these nude mice, and they grew little antler buds on top of their, their heads. And they've taken that antler periosteum and even grafted onto a leg of a deer, and it grew a spike on its leg bone, on the side of its leg bone. Oh. So, oh. I mean, and so they can grab that. People get bent out of shape <laughs> testing out shampoo on them little buggers. <laughs> but like that? Yeah, that, but and and then that's the, like rogue taxidermy, oh, but not taxidermy. Right. <laughs> and the, and yeah, those, but if that leads <laughs> to curing bone cancer, then everybody's oh, all, yeah. all in. I thought yep. just, I thought it was just like it was like part of the Texas deer oh, lobby. The nuance. <laughs> but those like, but those can you have more antlers growing out of one to two hundred inches? We'll grow one for you <laughs> out of his butt. <laughs> <laughs> and when they do it to a deer, that antler still on the leg still reacts to the whole the annual hormonal cycle, and then the antlers actually shed. No. And the antlers are shed because it's still feeding all of the same hormones out of the blood system. That's wild. And, and so they've been able to translocate that. And they've also taken the stem cells from the antler periosteum. Uh, Chuni Li, a researcher in China, um, has cloned two adult red deer just from the cells from an antler periosteum. And about eight other no. deer, some other deer species. I don't know if they're... Roots can, of deer. Can, can, can you send me the? Can you get me? Can you send me and Will the picture of the pink mouse yeah, with the yeah, antlers yeah, totally. so we yeah. put it on yeah. Instagram? Yeah, 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 you yeah, want to totally. see what we're talking about? Go yeah. on at, at Stephen or Nell, and we'll show you an antler yeah. mouse. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, pink mouse with a big bulb on its head. Yeah, you know, and that was from. He's the got research. a quarter inch antler. So they've taken those He'd cells. They point two five. Yeah, but the base, the base is big. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, they've cloned whole red deer just from the cells of the antler periosteum. Man, what, what? Yeah, I guess if it's like if it, I guess if you got an eyeball toward cancer, or you know, think about if you've got an endangered species and they're you've got five left and they're ready to blink out. If you could clone those, not ideal, but it's better than losing them completely. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm just talking <laughs> about like making mice have antlers. 
Yeah, right. All right. That's a tough one. You know, in CWD research, they have what's called cervidized mice, and they have some cervid genes inserted into the genome of the mouse. And then they can study with mice with their, with their fast generation time. You know, they're reproducing all the time. You can get 10 generations in, oh. you know, I don't know, a year or two. Yep. And so those mice have deer genes inserted in them, and they can study deer genes that are, that are relevant to CWD research. So they can, they can have all these mice instead of having deer and waiting to get 10 years old and do research on the genetics, deer, deer genes, but in mice. Hmm. They're called cervidized mice. And I was in the lab in Denver once, and I asked the director, do they get, and I started raising my hands like little antlers. He said, no, 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 they don't get antlers. <laughs> <laughs> Recently, you and I have been swapping photos of two-headed deer. Mm-hmm. It started out with a two-headed spike. Yep, in Mexico. And you said, don't do anything with this. Mm-hmm. Right. But we can release it now. At the beginning, the picture had came to a friend of mine and then come to me, and I asked if we could post it, and he said, well, let's wait a second. But I've now got the, the go-ahead. We can, we can post that. And I don't have any additional information It was killed. Do you have any better photos of it? I don't. That's the only, that's the only photo. Tell the story of this deer. Um, so it's a, it's a year, obviously a yearling, it's a spike. There's a picture of it laying there, the bloody tongues hanging out. It was harvested by someone, um, in, in the Mexican state of Guerrero, which is like Acapulco. It's kind of up the coast in Southwestern Mexico, um, in the, the mountains of, uh, Petitlan. And the picture came to a friend of mine, uh, and apparently all of the locals were pretty freaked out just for superstitious reasons about this two headed deer. I mean, it was, it, it was, um. People were pretty worried about it because it looks so strange. And the, the one photo we have, it looks legit. You know, you never know these things. I'm always a little guarded um, about that. But we've had two-headed fawns documented. Oh, this yeah. Thing's I, a I, on my Instagram, from Jim sent this to me. On my Instagram, I have photos, x-rays of a two-headed fawn. Yep. But the thing that blew me away about the little spike is like it actually lived. Right. And, and Dude, I wish they had video of it. Like, could it eat with both of its heads? Did one just kind of hang out? That, that's why a little part of me is guarded, you know, that it's, a, that it's a hoax. But I've looked at the picture, and, and if you have a fawn that's two-headed, it's only one more year. It would only have to live a year for that thing to be a spike and to get shot. And it would depend on what's going on inside with these what's called conjoined twins, where they're just twins that are joined and they share um, body parts. It depends what's going on inside. Every every individual is different. In that two-headed fawn that you posted, the, di- the did not have two complete digestive tracts when they did the necropsy on it. The the right head had a complete digestive tract. The left head, the digestive tract was intermittent and, and was blind, came to a blind end and mm. in at least two places. Did it just two hearts? So in its one esophagus sack. didn't fuse in with the main line. Yep. So that head wouldn't have been able to eat. Right. And then the, and then back by the rectum somewhere, there was another blind stop. And so it depends with the spike. If it had two complete digestive tracts, it's conceivable it could live, live one year and get shot um, as a spike. What, uh, what kind of deer was it? Just out of curiosity. White tailed deer. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the Coozy. spike was white tailed deer and the fall was cowsy. Yeah. That's right. Or cowsy. It might have been one of the other Mexican highland subspecies, but none of those have been studied. All of those are. Just kind of smaller deer in Mexico. So tell about this one we do know is, in fact, like totally legit. Right. The fawn. The fawn. Yeah. Was it found dead? It was found dead in oh. 2016 in, in um, was it Michigan or Mississippi? Minnesota. Minnesota. Um, a guy, mushroom hunter was out. He found this fawn. It was in perfect condition. It wasn't decomposing. It was dead. Um, and it, it looked like it had been cleaned off by the mother. 
but they did a necropsy. They did a fantastic job. Lou Cornicelli, who was a big game leader in Minnesota, and and Gino uh, D'Angelo is a, a University of Georgia professor, and they they did X-rays. They did a complete necropsy to to look at it. One thing they did was they they put the lungs in water, and the lungs sunk which means they've never had air in them. That's the way you can tell if it's stillborn oh, no or not. Shit. So they so it never had taken a breath. So it was stillborn, but it seemed to be cleaned off. So they felt like it was stillborn, the mother cleaned it and then abandoned it. And this guy must have found it right after that because it was in, in pristine condition. I was just watching a movie about that. Um, what was that famous operation they did in World War II where they, they threw a guy in the ocean... They they threw an officer in the a fake officer in the ocean, but they had to make up a whole background on him. And he had and he was carrying like letters, fake letters, and it's what led the it's what, it's what mm-hmm. led the Nazis to believe that the Anzi that the Sicily landing was going to be in Greece. Yep, I remember that they put fake documents so he'd wash ashore. And they made him a whole fake pass. They made a girlfriend a with a whole. You're talking about yeah. A corpse. They took a corpse, yeah. and and it had they took a corpse and just dumped it off a submarine mm-hmm. and um and they made up like this thing with this person with a past they had an actual girlfriend with a past to pull one over on the knots and it worked mm-hmm. yeah but they had a hell of a time um i guess for a long time they needed a body and they were afraid that someone would be this person didn't die in the water and, I always, and they didn't really get into it, but I wonder if that's what you're talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah, I'm, certainly there's forensic ways to tell whether they drowned or not. Like something about like what the the condition of the lungs would be or something. Mm-hmm. Did like, they determine why this thing like didn't take a breath? Like why it didn't? No, you know. And when they when they look at the the discontinuous um, digestive tract, you know, there's probably just all kinds of things um, wrong with it. There's been two other white-tailed deer fawns, two-headed fawns documented. But this is the first one that's been documented to have been born, even stillborn. The rest were in fetuses where they did necropsies on pregnant females, and then they they ran into these two-headed fawns inside the womb. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better. Because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know. They seem great to me. Just an improvement on perfection. The new system, made in the USA, gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like You still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20 plus years. Deck is a game changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck, out of the way, and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. 
Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle. Heart and soils, unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like Black Buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more you can order nicotine pouches online they ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country black buffalo tobacco alternative bold flavor full pouches Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Let's talk baculums. Bacula. Baculas. Okay. Hit me. So I was looking I was looking for some information for Spencer, and I think it's for an upcoming trivia question, so I won't go into details, but I ran into this paper. <laughs> <laughs> but I ran into this paper. That, that's all I needed to hear right that there, had, man. I'll be able yeah. to track it. Believe I'll, be me what do, I just I'll be able to do some reading. No, believe me, what I what I just said isn't gonna be a hint for whatever's coming up. Oh, okay. Um but I started I just reading. I sent Spencer three doozies for when I'm not here. They're killing me. I want to ask you guys if you know them so bad, but I'm not gonna do it. <laughs> Well, I was reading this paper and it had a whole bunch of different things. And one thing it had was um, was extraskeleton bones, like bones that aren't attached to the skeleton. It had a whole bunch of science on bacula. Which oh, that's I never baculum. thought about that. It's a bone unattached to the skeleton. Mm-hmm. Just like like kangaroos have these bones that support the pouch. They do? They, they do. <laughs> they do. They support the pouch. And the males have them too, which obviously don't support the pouch because male kangaroos don't have a pouch. But they, it's part of the pelvic girdle. And it's not attached. It's just another example of one of I these bones. I never thought about well, deer that. shoulders yeah. not attached. Yeah, I know it. That's that's true. Oh yeah, but it's, it's hooked on pretty damn good. I mean, with, yes, right. with muscles. Well, yeah, you're right. Not once you start cutting it, it's not. Uh, yeah, you're right. right. You're right. <laughs> yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Right. So there's a whole paper on these these extra Somewhere. extra bones. Actually, had antlers in there and and um and and sheep horns in there too. But I was reading about these bacula and was surprised, which is what, what I was the question that Spencer asked. Yeah, I forgot. <laughs> I forgot that one. So. Um, so I'm reading the paper about baculum, and I run into the fact that females have um, a companion to the baculum, 
which is actually a clitoris bone is what it is. Uh, what and, species? Uh, all the species that have baculums, the females. No. Yeah, yeah, not not 100%, but almost all of those species. And you don't find it in other species if they don't have a baculum, um, then, then they're not going to have. And the female so a black version, bear, take a black bear for instance. Mm-hmm. A female black yep. bear has a floating clitoral bacula. Compa- Ge- genital bone, and it's called a bobellum. B-A-U-B-E-L-L-U-M. So like I, so on it, let's say a, a boar black bear, like whatever, five, six inch long. Same mm-hmm. as a raccoon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. How what size would that female bone be? M- much smaller and and they're they don't look just like it. They're they're completely different um in shape as you'd imagine. But, so if you were like how big say? Um the um do you have any? I was looking at some. No, I don't. No, that'd be interesting. I'm, I didn't even know about it. Like small recently. enough, if you were, you know, cleaning that bear, butchering it, you probably wouldn't even notice. No, it. you'd have to look for it. Yeah. You'd, you'd hmm. have to go in there and, and certainly look for it. Because like even like a, a walrus's baculum is is like 18 inches long. And the female, um, I've seen pictures of both. No, no, isn't, I thought you can use those as a walking stick. <laughs> Just about can. <laughs> no, it's yeah. like a thing, man. A walrus, a walrus has the largest vacuum in relation to body length, like 18% of its body length. So like one-fifth of its body length is vacuum. Yeah, I think people used to make little walking sticks but out of But they're like little miniature baseball get bats you get at the... At the ball game, you'd like ball use as a for short people and club <laughs> for short yeah. people. It would be short like people. Danny DeVito yeah. had one, <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, but they, you know, baculums are found in a lot of carnivores. They're found in bears, found in rodents, um, primates, bats. A bat baculum is about zero point one five millimeters, a tenth of a millimeter is a bat baculum. I had no idea the bats had them. <laughs> I know it. I know. And then, and then they, they talk about the bobellum, the female version of it, of almost all of these, probably 80% of the species that have baculums, the females have a bobellum too. So it comes hand in hand. I and, have never even heard of that, So man. a bunch of research on that is like, well, why would you have a bone um, for the female genitalia? And they think it's just something that came along in evolution like male nipples. I mean- Two sexes having something, and it's really only functional in, in one of the sexes. So it's probably something that just came along in evolution with that. And it's more variable, too. The female bulbellum, even in some species that have it, you may have some individual females that don't have it and some that do have it. Like it's on its way out. It's yeah, like it's, it's not functional, and so it's, it's real variable. Huh. Um, but we know for a fact that it's not functional. Yeah. I mean, well, I don't think you can ever say that. But nobody's been able to, there's a whole bunch of different um, theories, even the baculum, theories about what, what purpose that serves. And there's a whole bunch of different theories. And, and the scientists will, will tell you, throw up their hands, and we're not really sure um, what, what purpose is. There's a couple obvious ones, but um, there's a lot of theories that have come across on that. If anyone out there collects the, what do you call it again, Jim? Bobellum. 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 Taxidermist or anyone, just start write, looking for write meat eater and uh, send them to us, and maybe I'll make yeah. some Attention jewelry for, teeny, for the next yeah, for, for, the, for yeah. the next uh, auction house. Yeah, and, then, and so there's then there's a lot of variability in in um, animals that have it. All of those, like the bear family, the raccoon family, um, the a lot of carnivores. Um, there's a lot of exceptions in there of species, like primates are one that have baculums. Humans obviously are, are an exception to that. But there's exceptions in all those categories of certain species that don't actually have a, a baculum. Hmm. Just, it, it, just species that are exceptions to that. 
we've been we we've been talking a lot about um lead and wildlife. Um you had written a piece for our website about lead and wildlife. Yep. Yep. Give me the give me the quick and dirty where yeah. you at on it. So the reason the reason I wrote that piece is there's just a there's a lot of talk. You read about lead and wildlife and you seem to get the same old things, but there's some other things that I think aren't being talked about, mostly the, all the nuance. People are happy to glom on to these, these bumper sticker sayings or just generalities like, like having lead in your venison is obviously bad for human health. Um, and, and people talk about like lead, using lead ammunition is um, toxic to wildlife. Well, my piece was let's focus on what the real issue is. The real issue isn't mammals, reptiles, amphibians with lead ammunition. The real issue is birds that are, that are consuming, mostly that are consuming um, meat or birds that will pick up lead pellets as grit, mm-hmm. um, both, both of those ways. But birds are very susceptible to, to lead poisoning. So let's focus on what the issue is. The issue is lead ingestion by birds. That's what the issue is. And, and it's not just generally lead exposure because I hear people saying, you know, they talk about lead exposure being bad. Let's be specific. It's ingestion of lead by those birds. And then let's focus on where it is a problem. And if we need to make some management changes in a local area or local valley, state and provincial and, and tribal game and fish agencies are in the, the position to, to change regulations if, if, it, if it's deemed a problem. But nationwide bans, statewide bans about lead exposure of wildlife, so we need to, we need to ban lead uh, or, or implement regulations. When you look at the science, banning lead or or advocating um, that everybody switch to non-lead bullets and ammunition is not very well supported from a conservation standpoint. Population um, level conservation is not very well supported from a human health standpoint. Metallic lead is very different than um, organic lead compounds, which is what's in lead paint and lead gasoline and 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 clutch um, clutch pads and, and brake pads, those, those, that's a very different kind of lead that can poison people very easily. Consuming a number eight lead pellet once every week is not going to elevate your blood lead levels. You've got to consume metallic lead almost daily. And that's what the science, that's what the human medical research shows before your blood levels are elevated to the point where it's the CDC um, safe levels. This might be a little out of your wheelhouse, but what would you say if I told you that Seth ate so much tuna that he got mercury poisoning. Apparently that's possible because I eat a lot <laughs> of sushi and I've also, I've often wondered about that. You did get that, didn't you? Do you have mercury levels? I, I didn't actually get my levels checked, but I was, I had symptoms of mercury poisoning. <laughs> he came back with a lot of tuna and ate it all in one fell swoop. I Big worry pelagics. about that. What? I eat tuna, I eat sushi enough that I kind of think about that. Well, I read a recent about it. Hawaii trip? Well, yes, part partially that in Louisiana eating cobia and just I would like guy eats a lot of fish in a, in a month's time, at least fifty percent of my meals were fish, and big, like big pelagic tuna, ocean fish, cobia, yeah. red snapper. And what were the symptoms? Uh, my hands were going numb. Um, Seth, like I was having weird memory loss. But this is the thing. See, I would have thought what? I would have rolled my eyes and been like, "That's the dumbest thing I ever heard." However. I, re- I had read a piece recently that is this guy that like never ate fish. There's a, there's a art. He got pulled off a cruise ship. He'd never ate fish. He's on a cruise ship that has like a sushi deal. 
and just camped out on it and with like developed mercury like a it's a temporary thing you get better you stop eating it, you get better he developed like a like a like a temporary mercury poisoning but that yeah. stays in your system doesn't it no like it eventually works. are we sure about that well i mean you, i'm sure you have some we're talking about enough to like knock you d in the dirt like it, like it yeah, did with seth I don't know. That's like I was looking at the knock your back in the dirt. And healthy, I was man. looking at like the recommended about that. Uh, like the consumption recommendations for just for like Canyon Ferry, the local lake here, and they say uh, five servings of walleye per month is what they don't they recommend like no more than that, and the servings eight ounces of fish. Oh yeah, you definitely and I, definitely like I was eating that. eight ounces of fish. Like I was eating way more than that a night. Is that an issue you know, with big pelagic fish, though? As oh, much? Yeah, I mean, these little man. lakes, sometimes big, you get seeps with, and mines going into well, these little lakes. I was, and when I was doing research, it said that cobia is one of the highest, like, one of the fish that has the highest mercury levels. And I was how, eating it's, it's an issue with big, pelagic, fatty They're fish accumulating all that. That are, yeah, like, that are living a pretty long time. They're bioaccumulating big fish, and it's, like, industrial, it's industrial, um, what do you call it? Like shit in the air, a flu. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Effluent, industrial fluent that Damn. comes down on the ocean surface, and big fish that are, and that they're big enough that they're eating, they're bioaccumulating from older fish. Yeah, it gets more. Think about a marlin. Marlin will eat mahi. Yeah, gets more and densely mahi accumulated. Big fish. Eat a great white shark, you're probably in trouble. No. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite but, fish writers. He like does these great books. Uh, his name's Vic Dunaway. I got a bunch of his books. He does like these books that are um, if you're going fishing somewhere, like, let's say you're going on vacation to the Gulf Coast, you get Vic Dunaway's like Sport Fish of the Gulf Coast, and it's um, a great picture of the fish. What's up with it? So if you catch fish, you're like the hell's that? You flip through Vic Dunaway and find your fish. And he always he has these really great like very concise food quality assessments which are like spot on and very concise. And his one for great white shark is don't even ask. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you put two and two together? Uh, like you were getting weird symptoms and then. Yeah. Well, I was just, I was just eating a lot of fish and I was like, um, I've always thought about mercury poison. Oh, so it was psychosomatic. It, you thought about it before you got the symptoms. No, no, no. I had the symptoms first and then i was like got to kind of yeah so not that you got brain. to thinking and then got symptoms yeah no, no, no. you yeah. told me right now he had liver cancer dude in five minutes my liver would hurt yeah. <laughs> no. do you know what i mean it, just, it wasn't that okay yeah um and i mentioned it to kelsey i was like i've kind of been having like weird uh like my hands are going numb um <laughs> and it ain't cold and, and she i'm goes, not ice fishing <laughs> yeah she goes yeah i'm having the same thing oh whoa so God, the Morris household, man. Well, I mean, one the one week I eat fish every single night for dinner. We do. We eat a lot of fish too. Guy likes fish. Well, you got to eat it when it's fresh, right? It's like that's one of those things that doesn't last in the freezer forever. Yeah, but it's yeah. I, I mean, eat a lot of fish too, and I feed my kids a lot of fish. But we punctuate it. Not I don't punctuate it because of mercury. I just punctuate it because I don't know. Like whatever. Yeah. Well, usually I do too. I just I am I'm like on a low red meat year. So <laughs> there's some, uh, I could help you out with that. Well, it's, uh, I'll be good. It. Yeah. It'd be nice. It'd be cool to test some of that stuff the next time you get some. That'd be great, man. 
Yeah. We can put our lab tuna, coats on, tuna, our media carbon. laboratory yeah. coats Maybe on. Maybe you can test. buy a really expensive machine that measures Oh, mercury. Greg Fonts has had some tested, I believe. I think he's done oh, that really? somehow or another. Hey, uh, let me ask you this. We're, I want to cover this in more detail when I got my story straight, but there's some legislation coming up, um, some federal la- legislation coming up that I'm, not, I'm a little hazy on details, so I want to like tiptoe around it a little bit, having to do with limiting the ability of federal land management agencies to restrict lead shot and lead ammunition on lands under their purview. Wasn't there, yeah, I, I thought there was just something about wildlife refuges, like a big ban right. on so wildlife. Right, so that's, that's, what, that, that, that's yeah. where I thought you were going. Yeah, well, no, it would be like limiting the ability in the future that, that some national forest can't yeah. at the federal level say, hey, even though the state's handling wildlife management, we're going to come in and say that just because no lead ammunition on our national forest, like limiting mm-hmm. their ability and, and making it be that it has to achieve certain, like it has to be, that the, that the lead has to be linked to a population as the primary cause of a population decline and not done frivolously. Do you got any comment on that, or is it a little early to tell? I, I don't know about limiting the ability of agencies to do that. There is um, a Federal Register notice now about some refuges that are being open to hunting, but that comes with the caveat of, of no lead, and so that's open for comment right now. And and their justification for that um, is not only not compelling, but there isn't much of a justification. They they just have general statements about um, lead and, and health and wildlife and doing the right thing and good conservation. So they don't they don't justify why lead couldn't be used uh, in those particular cases. But as far as limiting uh, federal agencies' ability, I just want it to be based on science, and it, it often isn't. So if if there's uh, if you can demonstrate some particular problem with using lead ammo in that spot, you know, let's regulate it. But state state and provincial and tribal agencies, that's what they do. They they have an issue that that impacts conservation and and they make some changes to to address that. And my meat eater piece did it had really four um four topics that often don't get talked about. And and one is what species are actually actually affected. And and I mentioned that. The other thing is the, the idea of population level effects. So for a long time, me and other people have said, hey, there's no population level effects, so there, so we don't need to regulate it. The truth is there probably is a whole bunch of population level effects with golden eagles and with bald eagles um, and, and, and other animals. We're just not monitoring them and studying them with such intensity that we would be able to detect a population level effect. But other than condors, condors is a big issue. But other than condors, I don't see any population level effects that are significant enough that would drive me to want to make some wide sweeping changes in what what ammo uh, people use. And so I think we have to be careful in saying there's no population level effects because there is. They're just small. And in some cases, we haven't detected them. Um, so, so I don't say that anymore, population level effects. I talk more in terms of is, is using lead ammunition such an issue to the conservation of that species that we need to make some changes. And, and, and I don't find any compelling arguments for, um, for species to, that we would need to change. What do you personally shoot when you're hunting? Solid copper. For the last 12 years, all of our rifles, and I have two pistols, a 10 millimeter and a 460 Roland that I've built up to be hunting pistols, and it's all copper, solid copper ammunition. And I've done that. I did that a long time ago. It started when my kids had uh, junior hunts on the Kaibab, and the Arizona Game and Fish Department gave us two boxes of premium copper ammo. 
Um, so I have 40 rounds of, of ammo just free every time the kids got drawn. And then you could also get a box of 50 bullets if you reload, which I do. And so I was getting some of this free copper ammo and started using it and really liked it. It shoots really clean. It's accurate. It, it puts animals down. It's effective at that range. And I like the wound channel is so clean. You know, a lead bullet will blow up and create a lot of bloodshot um, meat. And there's a lot of, they've shown some of those lead dust and those lead fragments that go 12 inches from the wound channel. I mean, it does, that lead does spread into a lot of meat. And I like the fact that a copper bullet will punch a hole in there and you lose very little meat. Oh, dude, listen, we, so I was just hunting, we were just hunting moose and we shot a bull 300 wind mag, Clay shot a bull, 300 wind mag, I'll stand right next to him, 19 yards, 180 grain bullet of a 300 wind mag, <laughs> shooting federal trophy copper. It went through the, like, ball, it went through the ball of the shoulder. Okay? That's Cut incredible. that bone clean in half, went through both lungs, lodged against the hide on the other side, and it was a absolutely perfect mushroom. Mushroom, yeah. Yep. That's, that's amazing. Anything that to make it through that. The, in a, uh, he's got thing in his pocket right now. An absolutely perfect mushroom at 19. Like, no, I mean, like. Is that the only shot? You shoot him more times? No, he put no one right next to it, but didn't need to. None of the pedals sheared off or anything. Nothing. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Nothing. But one thing I want to say about the, the whole lead issue, and, and I address it at the end of, of my article online, is that. Even if we, if it's not a compelling issue to, for everybody to switch to copper for wide-scale conservation issues or human health issues, we better be paying attention to hunter image. Because when they hold up a bald eagle, the, the symbol of, of freedom, and the thing is sick or dying because it ingested a lead bullet, and they, they tell the whole audience that, you know, hunters are still using lead bullets, and if they stop using lead bullets, we won't have this issue anymore. There's no doubt it makes us look really bad, and, and we should be paying attention to that because 95% of the public doesn't hunt, and that 95% of the public still supports legal regulated hunting to the tune of like 77 to 81% support for hunting. So why, why is there 5% of us that hunt? And the other 95% of the population supports us to such a high degree. It's because they, they know that hunting is a positive force for conservation. It does a lot of really good things for wild things in wild places. And so anything we've got like that that gives us a black eye, we'd better pay attention to and we better be careful of because we can't lose that support or we're going to lose everything. So I, I advocate people, if they can, start moving towards using non-lead uh, bullets, but mostly for the purpose of of, of hunter um, hunter image and just maintaining public support for what we do. And that's the main thing that, that I think that's the best argument for hunters. When you start telling them that y you're killing, you know, some small percentage of raptor populations, it's just not very compelling to get people to switch, but we, we better pay attention to how we look to the 95% that don't hunt. I shoot copper and I'm deeply uneasy with widespread ammunition bands that, like you said, aren't targeted. Mm -hmm. Now, I like to ask myself, what, what would I have been saying back when they did it for waterfowl? Yeah, now in waterfowl, there's a small percentage of ducks that were actually dying. That was not a population level effect. That, that was done, it was lead pellets for, for waterfowl was banned because bald eagles were still endangered at that time. And there were lawsuits about killing 
bald eagles that were eating ducks that had lead. And so bald eagles were getting poisoned by lead. Bald eagles were on the Endangered Species Act. And that was the driver. That's what drove, that's what drove the waterfowl lead ban, not impact, not population impacts to waterfowl. Got it. Uh, what's a binturong? A binturong is a bear cat. It's a ververvid. It's a, it's a kind of a goofy mammal that lives in Southeast Asia in the, in the, the forest. And they have a particular smell. They smell like popcorn. Um, and that, that, and that popcorn or. But this isn't of, the guy that's cut, that might be linked to, no, no, no. This isn't the raccoon looking thing that might be linked to COVID. No, that's no, no. a civet cat. I no, think. no, 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 no. Right? No. It's a thing that, a pangolin. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's pangolin. not. No, yeah. no, 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 yeah. no. It's but you're right. Pangolin raccoon, has been linked. I think they even live in Lavia. Raccoon dog? Yeah, that's him. That's well, a COVID thing? The same as gives a you COVID. The, the pangolin was the original. Jim's, I read it on yeah. Jim's Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, the, it, the, the, pangolin, the pangolin was involved too. They, found, yeah. they yeah. found some DNA that was linked to the pangolin. But they, these bear cats, people have observed for a long time um, that they, they actually like smell like fresh popcorn, which is bizarre because that, the, um, that smell, that fresh popcorn smell or browned um, buns or even seared steak or that really nice smell when you're browning something comes from uh, a reaction of amino acids and sugars and high heat. It's called a Maillard, a Maillard reaction. It's and like you, the and you have on here in the notes, it says unrelated to waterfowl because it looks yeah. a lot like Mallard. When you say Maillard, Maillard reaction. Yeah, the Maillard reaction. Yeah, there's a there's an Popcorn, seared today. steaks, fried dumplings, cookies, biscuits, breads, toasted marshmallows. Yep. So it creates that that chemical process of searing things with amino acids and, and sugar creates that smell. But these bear cats in, in um, Southeast Asia are running around with that same smell. And so some researchers looked at a whole bunch of compounds in their urine, trying to find some compound that might correlate, something that they all had. Um, and they found this 2-AP uh, is what, what it's called. And it, it's 2-acetyl, 1-pyrrolene. And it's just, a, it's just a compound, but it's the compound that results from when you're browning bread or you're searing steak, this, this Maillard reaction. Um, and so they found that compound and it was the only of about 50 compounds. It was the only one that was in all the individuals, like 26, uh, bear cats that they tested. It was in all individuals and it's known to create this smell, um, through the Maillard reaction. But I mean, nobody's toasting these binturongs in the forest. So, um, it, it's coming from something else in their urinary tract or their digestive tract. And there's some bacteria that have been shown to actually create as a byproduct, this 2AP that makes that smell. And so they're, they're only at this point theorizing that there's maybe some bacteria in the urine that's interacting and it's resulting in this 2AP being produced and making them smell like, like brown buns in the oven. Wow. <laughs> you know, it might be a good little research project for you, Jim. Why do pronghorns smell like Frito Lay corn chips? <laughs> I know. Maybe I that's have, why. I've heard that. I've heard that. And it, who you know? You run your hands through their hair and smell your hands. You think you've been eating Frito Lay corn chips? I'm looking forward to that smell real soon. <laughs> it is a crazy thing. I ate some uh, Maillard reacted mallards last night. Mm -hmm. Oh, delicious. <laughs> okay, I got I got one I got one more for you, Jim. Unless uh, unless you got more things you want to add. No, that's good. Where are we at with, um, you know, keep reading about COVID and whitetails and like crazy rates of COVID and, you know, 60-some percent of the whitetail deer sampled in, let me clarify, 
60-some percent of the white-tailed deer sampled in Michigan, I remember. It's not that they had COVID, but they showed, what the hell is it? They, they, they had exposure to the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID. They didn't have the disease and the symptoms, but they, they had high antibody levels. They've okay, been exposed right. okay to antibody it. levels. Mm-hmm. Where does that yeah. sit right now? There hasn't been a lot. I was just uh, this earlier this week, I was in the um, Fort Worth at the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, which is all 50 wildlife agencies in all Canadian provinces and, and territories like Yukon and Northwest Territories. And they have a wildlife health meeting. And they had a lot to address in that wildlife health meeting, which I always attend because that's the place you can get the latest information. And they weren't, they didn't have time to go into any detail, but the people from um, USDA and USGS that are tracking this Um, There's not a lot of new stuff since we talked in December about the fact, like you mentioned, that these white-tailed deer in the east um, are getting, not only getting exposed to this SARS-CoV-2 virus and and having antibodies, but they're they're showing that they're being exposed to the actual um, variants that are circulating in the human population at that time. No. It's pretty obvious that they're getting it from humans. I thought it was coming from Doug Duran's urine. Yeah. I don't know if I told you about that. Buckman juice. Buckman juice, right. Yeah. Yeah. So So there isn't a lot of- They're getting like updates. They're- yeah, they're right, How right. And the so, hell is that happening? So the, as they sample, like they sample whitetails two years ago over here at the beginning of the pandemic, and they had the, the original version, and then they sample, next year they sample deer in this other area, and they've got the Delta version. And then the deer over here have this Omicron um, version later on. So they're getting them as it circulates through the human population. From like really good bow hunters? <laughs> or like, like what? It's, so it's <laughs> spilling over. I mean? It's definitely spilling over into the, the deer population. Now the concern is then that, it, it circulates independently in the deer population and mutates as it does. Sure. Mutates and changes, and then they're, they're worried about it spilling back into humans. And that was documented in one case in Ontario where some guy that picks up road kills shows up with the version that's circulating in the deer population at that time. Hmm. So that was a case where deer actually, Moved the guy caught it from people. deer. But it didn't cause any unusual sickness. It was just... Um, he had a case of COVID. What's weird about that case is that mink are also susceptible and mink farms have had to be depopulated because they've, they've, they've got uh, the SARS-CoV-2 and mink farm workers have caught it from the mink. Those versions mm. that are circulating in the mink. This guy yeah, they was, were pelting like in Denmark and elsewhere. They yes. were pelting millions of mink yep. or I should, they were gassing yeah. millions of mm-hmm. mink. And I thought it would lead to a real spike in, in like mink and muskrat fur prices. But apparently they pelted they pelted tons of those mink and actually flooded the markets with with COVID mink pelts. <laughs> Interesting. What I've heard. The, the one guy that got COVID from white-tailed deer from picking up roadkills in Ontario, that version he got from deer, but it was actually a mink variant. No, that was in deer and then into human. Weird, just weird, You're weird stuff. Me. So if you went to this wild this health thing, did you hear about this big bad uh, hog virus? No. Stay tuned for that. Mm-mm. Sean Weaver's been been a whistleblower about some big bad hog virus. Hog, wild yeah. hog, or domestic? Well, hog? could it, you know? To stay tuned. Yeah, to he, find was, out. he said he was saying to me and Cal, he's like, "Hey man, pay attention to this because I got you know some disease people are telling me this could turn into a huge deal." Yeah, I wish I a knew that because, virus because that's the it's spreading of... among hog populations mm. on other continents. But there was some prediction. See, I shouldn't be saying this shit because I don't even know. Listen, <laughs> let me let me keep your eye on those. Odds. Listen, <laughs> I am talking. I don't have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> I don't know. However, something about some hog thing that could just be insane 
I shouldn't. <laughs> Stay Van tuned. the hogs as we know it. <laughs> yeah, I wish I knew that. You're I could have asked Jim. those people. You heard it from Jim. <laughs> yeah, we yeah, need to right. have Sean. You know Sean's right. dog report. We need to have Sean's hog hog report. report, and Sean will come hit us with a hog report. Hmm. What else you got, Jim? It's been a long time since we talked, man. Yeah, I know. It's just good to be back. Good to talk about fun stuff. Do you need anything? Is there anything I didn't that I didn't ask you that you needed to be asked about? I don't think so. i uh, just my Instagram account. I got rookie numbers. With yeah, if you guys up. could go and help bolster Jim back up, but listen, you just shoot, you, Jim. I was going to say shooting yourself in the foot. <laughs> I don't know. I, you might just need to make a new one that sticks to. I'm, I'm not trying to tell you what to do, but mm-hmm. you might need to make a new one that just sticks Stick to like account. deer biology and not. Do what you think might, and uh, you know what? Why don't you do this? And just cave into the yeah, AI no. bot? No, no. Here's an idea. I got an idea for you. Because I don't want, that's what I do. I don't want you to cave into the AI bots. Why don't you start two? Pistol Jim. Okay. Pistol Jim. That'll get flagged immediately. That, one, that one's not taken. Pistol Jim, and that's like your shooting account. And then you got your deer biology account. Then you run these two accounts and see... If, if the pistol account blows up and never gets flagged and your deer biology account gets taken down, then it'll deepen the mystery. Yeah. I don't like that idea. Don't. <laughs> no. Mm-hmm. I don't have time for that. I don't have time for two accounts. I'm going to hit the icon and go to the Instagram account. Okay. So help Jim out. If we could, how many followers did you have? Don't when you, report me. How many followers when he stole your account from 4, you? 4,000. If you guys just come on, help. If you don't have an Instagram account, make one. <laughs> follow Jim. No, follow Jim at Servid Nut. Not serving nuts. Servid. Yeah. Servid Nut. Servid like deer. Servid mm-hmm. Nut. And follow the wild turkey doc. And that's all you need to do. Yep. Yep. And my website, deernut.com. Deer, D W E R N U T. And you can get Deer of the Southwest there. And get Jim's new books. Yeah. And that'll be out probably January, February. That big mule deer and black tailed deer book. Did you follow that'll him, Seth? Then. Oh, yeah. I'm just looking at uh, your account now. You have a picture of deer on ice flows. Yeah. That right. are using them at, at, to mm-hmm. travel. Yeah, with three examples. That's insane. But did you see all the pictures? What? Ring an endorsement from Seth. Well, the, la- the last one is. <laughs> the last one is Rudolph and Cornelius yeah. on an ice flow. <laughs> <laughs> but there's one of a big whitetail buck, it looks like. Yeah. Standing on, on an ice flow. Standing on, on an, an ice, ice flow. flow. Yeah. Look yeah. at that. Ring it like Seth likes serving nut. Yeah. <laughs> Go to Servant Nut, get all, get Jim back up and running so they can come mm. and shut his account down again. Yeah. Then you'll have to go with, uh, I don't know, you have to think of some other thing yeah. that means deer. Gun nut. Yeah. <laughs> buck nut. I might get buck nut right now. And I'll be able to sell it to Jim later when he gets his account shut down for not learning his lesson. <laughs> all right, Jim Happelfinger. Can you say where you work? Yeah, Arizona Game and Fish. Do they get mad when you come on the show or do they like it because it's outreach? I think they're ambivalent. I mean, it's good information. It's not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> I wanted to hear they loved it, they hated it. It's just they don't care. <laughs> they do care. No, there are there are a lot of fans, of course, in the in the uh, in the agency. I was I was at a sandwich shop in Fort Worth last week, and sitting down at the table, and some guy came up to me and said, "Are you Jim Heffelfinger? <laughs> like, I feel like I'm near someone famous." And I, so I introduced myself, shook my hand, and he said, "Yeah, I'm a real fan of the meat eater, and I really like." Um, when you're on there, and I like your stuff. And I said, he, and then he said, what are you doing in town? And, and uh, so I thought he was another biologist at the meeting, because that's usually who knows who I am. And he wasn't. He just lived in Fort Worth. And I said, well, how did you know 
who I was randomly here in the sandwich shop. And he, he said, well, that big name tag on the lanyard. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great, man. All right, so here's what will happen. We're going to end the show. We're going to do trivia. Corinne's going to work with you to build up uh, as stuff comes to mind. You'll continue to send us what's on your mind. We'll, we'll uh, make a big stack of it. And then there was enough stuff that's on your mind. You'll come back and we'll cover what's on your mind again. <laughs> Sounds good. Oh, actually, I have one more question. I should have put this before. Um, when I first met you, I just I knew you as like that hair hunter. Hair hunter. The, the like big rabbits. That. You know? The oh, big, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Jackrabbit. Huh? Yeah, Jack, the Jackrabbit Jim. Oh. Um, Jackrabbit Jim. <laughs> that might be That's your Instagram <laughs> page right you there. You just need to have like disposable. No. You just need to have so many of them when you lose one. You're like, ah, that's yeah, yeah. Next one. Yeah. I had a Facebook one. page that was Jackrabbit Jim, and Facebook shut me down a you long time ago. No. <laughs> oh they said, they, and it was all about Jackrabbit hunting, and they said, Jackrabbit Jim's not your real name. And, and so you need to send what? us a photo ID, a government issue. Because the real Jackrabbit Jim's like, that's not him. That, and and so I and so I didn't have a obviously didn't have an ID with Jackrabbit Jim on it, so they shut it down. And I was telling my director, our past director, um, that story because he knows about the Jackrabbit camp I used to have. And he says, "I can I can fix that. I can get you a government issued ID that says Jackrabbit Jim." And my <laughs> my Arizona Game of Fish ID says Jackrabbit Jim Heffelfinger with my sister. <laughs> <laughs> but it was too late. It was too late to save oh, my man, account. You got a lot of problems so with funny. social media, man. I know. Uh, um, <laughs> Wow. That's hilarious. Go follow uh, Jim. Serve wait, it wait, even oh, she didn't get a question. Oh. question. The, the, the next year you said that the season, I think, was close because their numbers weren't great. Or, not close, Not yeah. close, or just their numbers were low. So I just wanted mm-hmm. to see what, what the state... Yeah, the, uh, they're they're coming back, but we've also had a horrible drought last year, and so we had this rabbit. We had this rabbit um, virus that swept through its uh, New Mexico, Arizona, but then it, it went all the way up into somewhat into the Northwest and the Rocky Mountain states. Yeah, um, and it really knocked some of our cottontail and blacktail jackrabbit, antelope jackrabbit populations down. And then a drought came after that, and so it was kind of a double whammy. So they're building their their populations back up. Um, the season's not closed because what little Hunting occurs isn't impacting the population, but I'd say they're just building back up. What's like so you guys were going, limit? you guys were going easy on us because there wasn't it wasn't worth the chase at the time. Well, we we also I know a lot of people that jackrabbit hunted that said they were just laying off them um, for a while, and then we had this junior jackrabbit camp we had every year, and we didn't have it two years ago because of COVID, and then last year they just decided not to have it just because of the population. Oh, okay. Do you hunt a bird squirrels? Mm-hmm. Yep. So here's the deal. I got I know we're trying to wrap up. Let me tell you this real quick. There's the national squirrel. Is it international or national squirrel cookoff? National. It happens in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Apparently, we got to get. The, we got. We're trying to work on this. They were going to do it in Tennessee, but they got mm-hmm. run out by the animal rights people. Mm-hmm. So Yanni's got. Yanni's been working with some people. They got a whole venue. We want to have a giant blowout squirrel world. world. But I want to get the guy. The the guy that actually does it in Arkansas involved. Mm-hmm. We want to have the most hugest. Squirrel cook-off blowout in Tennessee. I think that's Joe Wilson in Arkansas. I'm not positive about that. His buddy's a clay. Got I don't know. It's, it's, Those it's getting squirrels. deep because it's the Tennessee deep. boys said they've been reaching out to the Arkansas boys, and the Arkansas boys haven't been re- returning communications. Hmm. No. Well, if they don't want to do it, they don't want to do it. I mean, I, I don't know, but... Um, those Abert squirrels are big. Well, I think they're Jim nice. can bring up some Aberts and enter the competition. Matt Cook. They're not, they don't want to do it? I thought that they would run the whole program, the Arkansas boys. 
I, I don't, I'm just saying that previously already, there's before we ever got involved, they Tennessee had tried to make communications with the people that had been running the one in Arkansas, and they've been having difficulties getting a hold of them. That's all. Hmm. We'll figure it out. Yeah. yeah. We sh- we Either way, if we, do it, if we do it, you'll come up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That would be awesome. Oh, dude, you know, those Kaibab squirrels, squirrels are black A-birds. Yeah. They're pretty mm-hmm. cool. They look really neat. They've got a reddish stripe on their back. Oh, bring some They look like up. their size of cottontails. I'd like to go down and hunt a couple. Yeah. I need to well, add those I'd like to, to my do the, I'd like to do it. Squirrel slam. Oh, to do, you know what? I just transferred all my old Garmin waypoints. I had to call someone at Onyx to figure it out because I'm that good at that kind of stuff. I have bazillions of old waypoints. Mm-hmm. From like an old GPS? Yeah, that are yeah. around my Montana 600 yeah. from way back. Yeah. And I was like, I wanted to get them all onto Onyx, which is exceedingly easy to do, but it was like the most <laughs> baffling. I was looking at it, I was like, man, it's going to take me forever to enter all these coordinates. So I called someone on Onyx, like, no, just no, just do this, this, this. Over the phone, I got it all loaded up. And when I was going through them all, I got a lot of like, I hit, I hit a lot of waypoints to say Abert. It was like Abert 1, Abert 2, Abert 3. Down at Matt's? Just... What's that? Down at Matt's? No, in New Mexico. Oh, yeah. And it was, I was walking around, hitting and making waypoints every time I saw Abert squirrel. So I'm sitting on hot intel now that I thought was just lost to mm-hmm. whatever, but I know specific trees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hung out with <laughs> You them. need one of those pelts for your squirrel collection, too. Yeah. yeah. Well, we gave those to Guy Zucker. Yeah, well, you should get, get one of those for him. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Squirrel cook-off, man. Yeah. You know what? Maybe you could do like a lecture on squirrel biology down there. Could do that. That'd be interesting. Dude, it's going to be so cool, man. But we should bring in the, our squirrel, squirrel doc, doc, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. John Kaprowski. John Kaprowski is a good I friend like of mine. Him? Yep. My office is right down the hall from his before he went to the University of Wyoming. Oh, really? And I, so I knew him for more than 10 years. One of my favorite people friends. in the world. Oh, he's awesome. You don't hate him? He was, no, he was, <laughs> he's, he's helped me out. Speaking a whole of interesting bunch. baculums, hmm. remember the squirrel's baculum? Oh, barb. Corkscrew. Corkscrew. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. There's a dirty limerick about that that I'll not tell. Don't even, don't tell the punchline, <laughs> don't nothing. Remember, this is family friendly. You know, there's actually some theories that some of those things not about the, the oh. baculum like that might actually pull the sperm plug from the previous male out. Yeah, we covered that. Oh, did you? Well, your body covered that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. He gave you a little shit, as I remember. Mm-hmm. He's good. <laughs> he was good, yeah. No, Where, yeah. Where'd he go? He went to the University of Wyoming. He's the dean of the Hobbs School. So he, he's over uh, Monteith and not so much Coffin because he's USGS, but Monteith is in the program. So he's, so he's going to put all those he's guys on squirrel research. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Probably. No, John's he's, actually he's like, done I want to know all the squirrel migration yeah. corridors. John's done a ton of other research. You know, he's the squirrel guy. My son, I tell my son about him and he says, so do they call him the nutty professor? That's good. <laughs> That's good. All right. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, we'll see you. We'll see you at the squirrel cook-off. Yeah, for sure. World squirrel cook-off.
After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about ice age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. 